0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, October 11th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. Adam Smith was more than an economist, much more, in fact. Jesse Norman is a British MP and author of the new book, Adam Smith, Father of Economics. He discusses the contributions of Smith to not just economics, but also social psychology. We spoke last month. The headline for most people about Adam Smith... Is he's the father of economics? If you took your one required economics course in college, uh, you probably learned about specialization and trade. Uh, and if you went a little deeper, you may have read the theory of moral sentiments and uh, gotten sort of the more of the moral philosophy of Adam Smith. He uh, had no patience for people who were obsessed with trinkets. Uh, he spoke of how people don't just want to be loved. They want to be lovely. And uh, sort of talked about, in in a sense, sort of the economics of social interaction and how we discipline each other uh, to behave in ways that uh, are maybe socially beneficial and uh, arrive at at society in a very real sense and talked about that in a very uh, counterintuitive way. So in your view, uh, beyond the the mere economics of of Adam Smith which were you know significant uh, to say the least what was the larger project of Adam Smith
1: well uh, uh, it's a fascinating question and thank you for having me along today to talk about it uh, smith isn't just the father of economics he's also the father of social psychology and one of the mistakes that people sometimes make is they divorce the earlier book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, from the later book, The Wealth of Nations. And that makes it impossible to understand what Smith is doing. Because if you think of the first book, as sometimes people do, as a hymn to altruism uh, and as being about uh, benevolence and goodwill, and you think of the second book as – people sometimes do as being a defense of self-interest and sometimes greed and inequality. Both views, I should add, are completely false. But if you do, then it's possible to see a huge conflict between them and that creates all kinds of trouble. In fact, there's a much deeper underlying commonality. Uh, And when Smith discusses markets in the uh, Wealth of Nations, he does not do that in the disembodied mathematical way that we find so familiar from current contemporary economic modeling. Valuable in many ways as that is. Uh, He does that from a view of markets as embedded in societies, cultural artifacts. And as soon as you take that historical uh, view, uh, it becomes obvious that he's interested in uh, the practices, the habits, uh, the behavior. And behind that, the norms and the values of the participants and their interactions and the way those are shaped and shape economic incentives. And therefore, the earlier book, far from being divorced from it uh, economically and uh, intellectually, is part of the same project because the theory of moral sentiments is all about how do those moral norms, how do those social values get formed? It's part of the same thing. Underlying that, if we peel the onion back another layer, is I think the deep theme of what Smith is doing, which is looking at exchange in all its varieties. So exchange of goods and services we recognize from the political economy, from uh, the wealth of nations, exchange of esteem and regard, theory of moral sentiments, uh, but also in the unpublished lectures on rhetoric and um, lettres uh, very early in his life, Uh, uh, exchange of uh, linguistic communication and ideas. Uh, And that, I think, that three-level idea of exchange is the linking theme that creates Smith's overall project and that fits it into the Humean and Smithian idea of a science of man. Uh, which is in a way itself a quintessentially enlightenment idea. Do social scientists more
0: broadly than just economists uh, view it as reasonable to say that Adam
1: Smith is the father of social psychology as you do? I don't think uh, many social scientists actually have much of a historical mindset. They, uh, uh, the aspiration towards science is always an aspiration to judge things in terms of the current state of the art.
0: Well, right, but to the extent that uh, psychologists or sociologists uh, do they engage with Smith? Is he somebody who still has any kind of currency or did he ever have any currency in those fields?
1: Uh, I think uh, I think his currency is increasing. I think as people go back and understand more about what he's doing, and I hope one of the things that will come out of this book is a wider understanding of these interlinkages in a way that does stimulate uh, sociologists and social psychologists to think more about Smith. What is fascinating is that when you take the economic perspective, um, it becomes blindingly obvious, as has been shown in the academic literature that Smith is um, the father of behavioral economics uh, and experimental economics in many ways, as well as he is of um, economics as a discipline. All
0: right. So, All um, right.
1: Tell me, how was
0: the book received uh, when, I, when we talk about the theory of moral sentiments? Um, you know, this was, as you note, an earlier work, of the, of, though, of course, if I'm recalling correctly, he did revise it throughout yes. uh, his life. Uh, how was that book received at the time before he, you know, achieved such notoriety w- in with the Wealth of Nations?
1: Uh, well, it was regarded um, very favorably, and. There's a wonderfully funny teasing letter from David Hume, who was in London at the time, was in a position to judge the reception, in which he manages to talk about three or four other things before getting round to the subject. He knows Smith is desperate to hear about, which is how his book is going down. And then says, um, I'm very sorry to tell you that it's been extremely well received in all quarters, including by those monuments to superstition, the bishops, and if they support it, uh, you can imagine uh, um, uh, how deplorable um, the overall position is. And of course, that's classic Hume, wonderfully ironic way of saying that it's been a huge success.
0: All right. So with respect, and I think that's, that's very interesting that it's uh, been by, by overtly religious people have, would have received that book very well because it is, uh, it's a handbook uh, of sorts to behaving well in society. And and understanding what people are after when when you interact with them.
1: I mean, yes, it's got it's got several layers to it. Uh, it's an astonishingly brilliant work and uh, repays uh, constant review and consideration. One of them is what you might call the homiletic effect. You know, the encouraging of people to behave in moral ways. I think, in many ways, that's the least interesting part of it. The intellectually interesting part is the is the idea that. Um, exchange of esteem or regard allows us to build a theory of social values and and norms um, which is independent of external authority. And that external authority might come from, as it were, a belief in uh, divine uh, intervention or uh, a belief in natural law or the status of the scriptures, or it might come from, as it were, a response to authority in the form of the king or other forms of uh, uh, social authority within society. So, in that sense, it's a very naturalistic and proto-scientific view, and I think that also is what links it so fascinatingly to that social science perspective of Smith that he's really starting to begin to push push out uh, at the same time in The Wealth of Nations. Now, you you talk about authority versus society uh, in a in a way here,
0: and it it always struck me that the theory of moral sentiments. Um, Uh, and the wealth of nations in different ways are essentially talking about uh, how equals
1: interact, is that fair to say? Yes, I think it is. I think one of the mistakes people make is they think of Smith. Smith's been very widely caricatured, as you know. If if you if you read what the left say about him, he's the you know uh, an apologist for greed and inequality and the founder of evil market fundamentalism. And if you read what they say on the right, he's a laissez-faire economist and uh, um, uh, you know uh, uh, a a lover of uh, freedom. And I think both of those are wrong in some key respects. Um, but the but the crucial idea uh, for Smith is that not of capitalism, which doesn't come into being into the middle of the 19th century in the sense of autonomous pools of corporate capital and open markets, um, uh, what matters therefore is not capitalism for Smith, um, it is commercial society. And because he takes a historical view, he anchors his analysis of the present era in the 18th century and now um, in terms of a theory of social development and of course that remains remarkably cogent today. So for him, the big move is when England and Scotland emerged from feudalism. Feudalism was the personal dependence of one person on another, be that the aristocrat or the king. into commercial society in which, as he says, um, you know, each man is in himself a merchant and lives by exchanging. And there's a presumptively equal aspect to that. And that also um, underlines the highly egalitarian nature of Smith's thinking, again, a view completely misunderstood or or, or, uh, misread by uh, some of his modern-day political interpreters. Yeah, so uh, there is a... uh a
0: depending on how you look at it, a religion that's a joke or a joke that's a, actually a religion known as Discordianism, uh, and they have a principle known as the SnaFU principle, and it re- reminds what you just described reminds me of that because the in its simplest form it is uh, communication is only possible among equals, and that seems to go to really to the core of the Smithian project, which is the idea of like in a in a cosmopolitan world. Uh, in which we are, you know, where we have families, but we have lots of interactions among lots of different kinds of people, either commercial or personal, uh, the presumption of equality in some fundamental way is one of the most important Uh,
1: elements of making that all move pretty smoothly without these hierarchies that define your role. Yes, I think Smith would agree with some aspects of that, but not of others. So the aspect he would agree with is the idea that when you're in a conversation with someone, there is a presumption of equality and a recognition of the other's right to speak. And that carries with it in the modern era and in the 18th century, an enormous array of uh, bourgeois expectations, if you like, about the person's willingness to converse and their fundamental reliability and the context in which you're talking about and um, that's in a way a matter of manners as much as it is a matter of philosophy. Where I think he would disagree with what you said is uh, I don't think Smith thinks that – I I don't think Smith is – I think it's pretty clear that Smith isn't a cosmopolitan Um, and that takes the equalizing theory too far. Smith, for example, in trade does not believe that uh, nations reach some harmonious uh, state of mutual understanding through uh, the equalizing effects of trade. Uh, He thinks nations um, operate in a way that is reflective of local national interests and that sets them often in jealous and competitive in the non-economic sense, relations with each other, and he's a realist about trade interactions. Similarly, uh, he's not a cosmopolitan in thinking that um, the, the, as it were, the person a million, uh, ten thousand miles away from you has the same moral value to you as a member of your family. Oh he no, thinks he's, there he's are a, gradations. Quite, right, he's quite explicit right. about. it. he's quite it, but explicit about,
0: that, about yeah. talking about, the, as I recall, the stories of, you know, knowing you, you feeling some pain. Uh, a a a friend or relative feeling pain and someone hundreds yes. of thousands of miles feeling pain and and our level of concern about that and why that is a natural reaction.
1: Yes, and and um, he so, so I think that's another reason for thinking he's not a cosmopolitan in that full sense.
0: All right. So, um uh, McCloskey reviewed your book in in the Wall Street Journal and yes. she she talked about how if you're somebody who is a, considers himself a, a compassionate conservative, there's much to like in the book um, if you are a liberal in uh, various senses of the word you you may also like it with some exceptions but if you consider yourself to be a classical liberal uh and uh in in, a, in the the tradition of classical liberals and she names several people um that there is there's some disagreement I, i'll leave it to listeners to read her review but uh it, it what would you what do you say to to her review
1: well i mean n- not unnaturally i think um, she's fantastically nice about the book so um i must be very careful to uh, recognize that uh those w- w- wonderfully complimentary paragraphs uh, but i think i also i hope you and she won't mind my saying that i think her criticism is actually incoherent um and the reason is this that she almost more than any other current uh, economist has um, argued for Uh, the bourgeois virtues and the bourgeois dignity that goes with that. And she has pioneered the idea that what was powering this astonishing, what she calls the great enrichment, was a change in norms and moral values um, fully as important as technological change, uh, ch- you know, access to factors of production, access to finance, or any of the other factors that people have thought of as driving the industrial revolution. It's that process of um, the spread of bourgeois virtues through markets that she thinks has been the great change. Now, th- that is a view that comes straight out of Adam Smith. And um, rightly so. But it's uh, bizarre, if I may say so, um, to have a criticism which says, well, the argument, uh, as it were, I'm going to revert to a Chicago liberal type position at the end of a review in which I've just spent um, the first half talking about the importance of this um, view of norms and the normative status of markets. And it also suffers a difficult, it seems to me, economic problem, which is that um, it seems to presume, it seems to assume that rent extraction... um, uh, as it were, uh, cannot occur in a uh, an entirely classically liberal free market and that um, the effect of any government intervention must be to worsen it. Whereas in fact, we know um, from countless examples that in some cases, the effect of interventions can be to reduce rent extraction and suppress Coney capitalism, all of which things I think she would tacitly agree with and Adam Smith certainly advocated.
0: Uh, there was a book a few years ago and I, I think it was called uh, Filthy Lucre. And uh, the subtitle, I believe, was uh, "Economics for People Who Hate Capitalism." <laughs> and there are frequent references to yes. Adam Smith, as yes. as you would expect. But in particular, when whenever I'm talking with somebody who who fancies themselves a, a a modern liberal in in the in the sort of ideological sense of the word in the United States, at the very least, yes, uh, I make points to suggest what Adam Smith did like and did not like about. The enterprise of business, yes, and, and I think that's that's the kind of thing that uh, people who. Who hate what they view as the excesses of capitalism would really grab onto yes. and 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 really internalize.
1: Yes, I totally agree. And often that's described as a an anti-corporatist agenda. Yes, and an open market agenda. I think that's right. I mean, two points really. One is as I make point, you know, the, the, one of the ess- essential points of the book is that it's designed to ram home how relevant Smith's ideas are for today. And one of those key areas is in his analysis of what we would today call crony capitalism, um, which he breaks down into three things, rent extraction, uh, asymmetries of information and power, and the principal agent problem, broadly speaking, we pay these people to do a job and they walk off with our money. Um, now, that those three things are... Are absolutely essential to any anti-corporatist critique, and they come straight out of Adam Smith. Then the second thing I would say is when you look at Smith's uh, system of natural liberty as it is, it's very important to realize just how radical and equalizing it is. And I don't think perhaps Deirdre and others quite r- recall this. Um, first of all, he uh, does; it does not allow for primogeniture, so it does not allow the passage of pools of capital from one just to the firstborn and its preservation within families. The second, is uh, it, um, uh, it is a system in which profits are competed heavily away and therefore, corporates are not able to build up enormous amounts of profit. I think he's wrong about that. I think there's good rent extraction as well as bad rent extraction. You can build up good rents in the form of uh, uh, trademarks and uh, goodwill and the like. Um, But that analysis is still very pungent today uh, at a time when we see uh, competition falling in some markets. Um, And of course, it's also a a world for him in which um, the interest of the workers is to be preserved um, against the master because of the asymmetries of information and power between the two sides. That's something people completely miss. And finally, of course, it's a world in which potentially taxation, if it's fairly and honestly levied and transparently levied, can be at least potentially quite onerous. And, you know, Smith at one point talks about a land tax. Now, that's far more radical than anyone's advocating in either Britain or America at the moment. So I think uh, it's a very selective view of Smith that ignores those equalizing uh, elements. And I think Um, a more sophisticated view of that would push us away from a a strictly classical liberal interpretation. Smith lays
0: out the benefits of exchange uh, in a a beautiful way. Uh, And you talk uh, just just moments ago about how relevant he is to the problems that we face today. The president of the United States is someone who has consistently viewed trade as zero-sum and uh, has undertaken policies to punish other countries that have uh, policies that he doesn't like with respect to trade. Uh, He claims on both sides of the issue that one, he wants a world with zero tariffs while simultaneously uh, unilaterally imposing tariffs on several other countries in order to punish them, even our closest neighbors, uh, Mexico and Canada. So what would you tell to the president of the United States uh, about the insights of Adam Smith that he needs to take very seriously if he cares about things like, oh, legacy and re-election.
1: Well, I'm not going to presume to give lessons to the presidents of the United States of America, uh, but what I would say to any listeners is if they want to understand what the issues are that are involved, um, uh, they uh, and to get a contemporary take, a historically nuanced contemporary take on them, then they would enjoy uh, the book. I think that uh, the key point here is and the Smithian point, Smith recognizes that sometimes in trade and negotiations, there's a dirty, disreputable bit which involves giving the other side a bit of a bloody nose in order to try to level the playing field. and if that's where we end up that's something that's not incompatible with the wealth of nations but he also points to the long term dangers of embedding tariffs either through tariff wars and tit for tat or because of the increase they give to consumer interests and to crony capitalism um he also worries about that and and if the us gets trapped into that position then it may very well be economically uh, extremely disadvantageous so you're saying that tariffs are not a good way to drain the swamp. Uh, I'm saying that Smith would have taken a much more nuanced view than that general characterization suggests um, because uh, there are moments where he thinks the imposition of tariffs can be justified and there are moments, uh, but overall, of course, he believes in the virtues and value of uh, open markets and free trade.
0: Jesse Norman is a British MP and author of the new book, Adam Smith, Father of Economics. You can subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.